Hello, everybody, and welcome to this special conversations episode of Media Voices. I'm Chris Sutcliffe, co-founder of Media Voices, and this week we're going to be talking about everything to do with why data is so important when it comes to building trust with audiences. And I'm delighted to say that I'm joined by a team from Reuters, including Scott Malone, who's Reuters politics editor, Stephanie Burnett, who's the editor of Digital Verification, and Rob Shack, who is the director of Emerging Products and Special Events at Reuters News Agency. So thank you all for taking the time to go on and have this vital chat. Thanks, Chris. Hi. Thanks. Glad to be here. Absolutely. Well, we're just days away now from the US midterms, and there has never been so much at stake in terms of misinformation and polarization. And I'm sure that we can all think of examples of the consequences of some of those issues which are playing out around us in real time. And the Reuters team have been hard at work producing election data, maps, infographics, and well, much, much more to help publishers cover the midterms accurately. So on this session, we're going to dig into how data and trends can help cut through some of that noise, how this work will feed into future elections and other reporting, and ultimately how it affects how audiences have trust in the news that they consume. So to begin with, I wondered, obviously Reuters have been building up to this coverage for quite some time uh, around the US midterms. So what has that looked like for you in terms of planning? And what are you hoping to achieve with some of that coverage? Scott, could we start with you, please? Yeah, thanks, Chris. And thanks for having us on. Planning for for an election kind of usually starts the day after the last one, right? So uh, so from from early in 2021, we were thinking about these these midterms and, and the direction that they would go in. And what's that mean? That means, um, you know, most importantly, um, keeping a close track on on the country and Americans' attitudes and what people's concerns are, what they're, uh, what they're motivated by, what they're worried about. Um, it means building, uh, having reporting teams that, um, that are on the ground um, and closely tracking key, uh, key races. And it means having a great data set um, for, um, for election results so that you're able to report things in real time as they, uh, as they come in. I wonder then, you said obviously planning begins the second that the last election has ended. Is this a rolling process of, you know, iterating upon what you've done before? Or is this kind of every, do you consider every election kind of a brand new project? No, of course. I mean, one one leads into the next. You you know, you see similar themes emerge, um, you know, phenomena that emerge in one, um, in one race, uh, repeat in another one. Um, we have an example of that uh, this time around, obviously, in 2020. Um, then President Donald Trump um, famously um, refused to acknowledge that he had lost the uh, the election. Um, that's a false claim that he's continued to uh, to repeat uh, for the past two years. Um, and we do now see um, see some candidates in his uh, in his mold um, also raising questions as to whether they would accept uh, accept defeat. See, that's that's fascinating, and I think that speaks to how important the work that you're actually doing is. But Stephanie, from a digital verification point then, how have you been sort of planning for this upcoming project? Yeah, similar to what uh, Scott was saying about um, how Trump was saying that the the election was still his and he he rightfully won it, even though that is false information. We've been monitoring narratives like this, and this is the predominant one that consistently goes around on various platforms uh, on social media. So what we're doing is we're monitoring uh, political narratives. We're seeing what's true, what's misleading, what's false, and making sure our audiences have access to this information and the information that's necessary to make informed decisions, including uh, at the voting polls. And when it comes to data, a lot of it, what we see is um, a false equivalence. So mm. using data to manipulate uh, the results or to suggest that it confirms uh, 
a narrative or information that is misleading or false. And this is another thing that we keep uh, keep our eyes on uh, and make sure we have that needed context on these uh, posts. See, something that both Scott and, and you, Stephanie, have flagged here is that this is such a task. This is, you know, the, the hugest wall to climb here. And, you know, as you mentioned, data can be used for confirmation bias as well as to actually disprove things as well. So that's that's something that I imagine is impossible to grapple with. But Rob, I know that you've actually prepared for some, um, I suppose, some election packages for this as well. This isn't coming into this with a sort of a, uh, a sort of casting a wide net. You've actually got a very specific strategy here. Yeah, and, and um, thank you for asking. I think that, you know, the good news is we don't have to do it all alone mm. at Reuters, right? We've been able to make partnerships like the one we made with the National Election Pool in the U.S., which is, you know, ABC, CBS, NBC, and CNN, along with Edison Research. And they're, um, what we're doing there is we're syndicating the data that is used by that pool on TV on election night out to the rest of our clients and using that in our own reporting. Um, so in addition to all the great work that Scott and Stephanie do, we're able to bring in and sort of show our work and, and show uh, the the raw data to our clients to be able to develop infographics, the map, you know, that you see on election night on digital platforms, make that data, that content, those presentations easily available to our clients so that that, that true data uh, set can actually be distributed far and wide and, and used by everyone. Um, to, to try to spread truth. See, that's as I think that's almost a thesis statement for what we're going to be talking about. Is that you know the desire to spread truth there? But Scott, from uh, your perspective, why are the U.S. midterms so important? Obviously, we have a huge U.S. UK contingent who might not know the, in, the ins and outs. But from a sort of election narrative perspective, why is it so important that you sort of get the facts right all the way through the process? Well, I mean, that's that's what journalism is, right? I mean. <laughs> <laughs> at, at its core, that, at, at its heart, that is that is that is what we do. Um, but no, I mean midterm midterm elections. They are they're critically important. Um, they are really on par in in in, perform, in in importance with any other election. Um, it determines, you know, for, particularly for for those who are maybe deeply versed in American politics. Um, it determines which party is likely to uh, control Congress for for the next two years. Um, and Congress, importantly, has the power to authorize or not authorize spending. Um, it's typical in a uh, in a president's first midterm elections after being um, after being elected for the opposition party to gain seats. Um, this time around, it's looking to follow the historic pattern, um, as it is now, um, for the past two years, Democrats have had majorities in both chambers, but they've been very, very narrow, right? Um, that very much makes it easier for Republicans to take back a, uh, to take back majorities in, in the House, which is, which is forecast. The Senate's more competitive as, as, of, as of now, October 31st. That looks like it could go either way. Um, but, um, all, all the opposition party needs is control of one chamber to be able to block basically any aspects of President Biden's uh, legislative agenda. See, that's fascinating as well. I mean, it's harder for me to keep track of what's going on in UK politics at the moment, let alone the US. So thank you for that. Um, but one of the things that we we touched upon in that first question is this idea that you know journalism is really about informing the public. So how is the work you're doing on elections like this helping audiences understand implications, kind of ramifications, everything that's going on with the elections and how ultimately it affects them? Um, Rob, what do you think of you know your your role in that? What I've seen from the data side of, of the house is that the, and it goes back to another part of the of question one, you know, the, the way we look at the polls, the way we look at the data, the way we report on um, the results has shifted. And it's not something that stays the same from election to election, but does require consistent 
attention on um, the election process and the electorate um, to make sure we keep putting the, the election in context for uh, our clients. So if you go back, for instance, maybe two or three elections ago, um, we were thinking about college educated versus non-college educated voters and, and seeing that um, in addition to all the other ways we would split the electorate and report on the electorate before, that became an, an, an important sort of cross tab in, in how we um, kept track of what was happening, kept our finger on the pulse. Whereas in the last election, because of COVID and because of the way voting has changed, it's now also about uh, how people are voting. Are you voting early mail-in or in-person? Um, that's a big driver and a big sort of pivot point and cross tab and, and how we're keeping track of the election. So um, having that experience, uh, again, with, with uh, amongst our own team and then also having great partners who have that uh, can, can give us sort of clue, in, clue us into how things have evolved over the last 15 or 20 years. It's really helpful. And I might actually, if I may jump in here um, and follow on, on Rob's point, he, he, made the, he made the interesting point about uh, 2020 and how the ways that people voted had had changed. And that was obviously a, a um, there's always been early voting and voting by mail as a factor in, in U.S. elections. But in, in election cycles past, it had been less common. Obviously, 2020, due to COVID, it became... Um, it became, you know, really, you know, qu- quite a substantial part of the uh, of, of the of the vote. And what was interesting about that is you tended because COVID response became a subject of partisan polarization in in the U.S. Mm-hmm. as as it did in Britain. Um, you saw different patterns in who was voting early and who was voting by mail in some in some cases. Um, we're seeing again a um, a very high level of, of early and mail voting. Um, one noted forecaster, uh, the U.S. Elections Project, has basically said it's probably going to be somewhere between forty five to fifty percent of the of the vote. And what's important about that is um, is that'll influence. Kind of what we see in terms of results on election night itself. Um, quite a number of states have a uh, have a policy of they, they first count and and release the the tallies from in person day of voting and they follow up mm. uh, with with mail voting and, and other forms of voting and that can lead to a phenomenon which you call a um, a red shift red mirage or in this case because it tends to, to the early results do tend to to favor republicans so it's quite possible that early in the night you'll be looking at results that are that are far more overwhelmingly strong for republicans that as more of the of the remote vote and the other other ballots are counted will shift What's become clear from both your answers there, Rob and Scott, is this idea that with this multiplicity of data, with all these data sources, it, it, it is beholden to journalists and to journalist organizations to really sift through that and provide a narrative and information that the public can understand. That is absolutely our remit. But Stephanie, when we do that and when we actually sift through this data and provide a, uh, a all that information, what does that actually do with the relationship we have with audiences? Do they necessarily build trust just because we're putting this data out there? How do you actually feel like projects like this actually impacts the trust that audiences have in journalistic outlets? Yeah, I think uh, for me and, and studies have shown for, for general audiences, right, transparency is key. And when you're dealing with data, uh, you have an opportunity to put that out there and be transparent about it. Now, granted, there's a lot of complicated uh, information out there. The numbers can be overwhelming. So it's also the job of journalists to distill that information and communicate it in an accurate, yet compelling way that is easily understandable for uh, for audiences. So I would say uh, when it comes to data and, uh, and portraying that data, it does 
help build trust in the media because, or not within the media, but for audiences specifically, uh, because then that gives them information that they say, okay, this is unbiased information because it's the numbers, it's the facts. And now I can take that next step to come up with my own conclusion mm. or take that next step to make a, deci- a decision, uh, whatever it be in my, in my current life right now. Absolutely. And that, that that does rely on that transparency, obviously, because we, as we'll touch upon in a little bit, we've seen how people have responded even to, you know, sharing of data and, and, you know, the polarization that arises from that. But we've mentioned COVID a couple of times there. And over the course of the pandemic, we saw a number of publications uh, almost go against their own business model, drop the paywall and really provide infographics for free to the public that helped inform them to keep them safe and to make sure that they were abreast of everything that was going on with the pandemic. So Rob, to what extent do, um, I suppose, infographics graphics impact the work you're doing and how are you thinking about them in this particular run-up to the midterms? Yeah, I mean, the, the way we try to think of it a little bit differently is that um, the infographic is, as a product for a news, news organization, um, really easy to pick up use. It's an embedded, you know, what we develop is, what we've developed is a uh, an embeddable graphic that really is, you know, as easy as a couple of clicks to in- integrate into a website. Um, a different methodology that we think will make it easy for smaller publications to um, to absorb a very small cost for something that used to be incredibly expensive, prohibitively expensive. You had to be a TV network to mm. have this kind of data, you know, five or 10 years ago. Uh, we're making it ubiquitous, we're making it available to uh, clients of all sizes and um, and making it possible for everyone to kind of have, this, have the same free access to the data you see on TV on election day. See, I think that's fascinating. And Scott, I saw you nodding along there to that point about, you know, th- this ha- used to be the remit, the the, the private fiefdom of, say, the TV networks. What has that democratization, that ability to share some of this information, you know, disseminate it without recourse to TV, what has actually done to how you think about coverage? It improves our, our speed and... Um, and the visibility that we're able to give the reader into, you know, th- th- this is what we know, this is how we know it, this is what it means at this time, and here's the context you need to have to understand, you know, what may be coming next. And, and something else I think that's interesting to throw in there is that increasingly we're not just talking to newsrooms, which is Reuters' traditional customer, we're talking to large d- digital platforms. Mm-hmm. So the search engines, the, the, the home assistants. Um, the, the platforms that you don't think of as, as publishers definitely don't want to be called publishers, um, but interested in, in, in getting access to that data so they can do a measure of control on their own platforms as well. And just as we were talking there about the difficulty of you know passing all this data, collecting all that data at the beginning, I suppose just as much thought goes into actually how that information is then presented in those infographics, because obviously you have to, I, I think we spoke to uh, John Bird Murdoch, who was the um, FT's infographics editor during the course of the pandemic, and he was mentioning just the difficulty of, of choosing from these different sources what was most important to the public. So there is still a huge editorial consideration that goes into infographics, isn't there? It's not just kind of throwing it all onto a graph and, and letting whoever sort of try to pass that on them on their own terms, is it? We try not to put it in the hands of someone who doesn't quite know how to interpret it properly. I think there's a, a measure of expertise required. I have hundreds and thousands of really smart people like Scott and Stephanie around uh, in our editorial team uh, who interpret it and help me understand, help us understand how to apply judgment to it. Perfect. Well, as, as we mentioned at the top of the episode, one of the things that we've seen data being used as a bit of an antidote for is this rapid rise in polarization, increasing uh, emotion being generated by the news in a way that potentially is good for the bottom line of the business, but isn't necessarily fulfilling that journalistic agreement of informing the public. So, 
one of the ways that we've seen that really uh, manifest is in this idea of neutrality and whether it's, you know, A, ever possible to be truly neutral as a news organization, but also B, how then those news organizations use their power to inform the public. Um, and the idea of neutrality has been seen as kind of the bedrock of that trust discussion. Uh, and it's something that obviously you wrote to see as being very important too, but how do you actually put neutrality into practice in reporting, especially for topics as diverse and important as this? It's journalistic fundamentals. It's journalism 101 is what it comes down to. It is starting with, you know, if somebody has, has made a claim, do they have, um, is there a reason to believe that they know what they're talking about? Can, can the claim be, be verified? Are there documents? Are there other sorts of data that, that stand something up? Um, and then once you've heard somebody's argument, you know, what other arguments are there? Um, what, what are the other sides of the story? Um, and coming to something from, from all sides, um, while at the same time remaining rooted in fact. Um, you know, mm -hmm. if you have a debate where part of the debate is based in fact and part of the debate is not based in fact, um, you don't give, you know, you, you, arguments that are not supported by evidence, you wouldn't give the weight to that you would to an evidence-based argument. Do you find that that's, um, as a discussion, that the public is well enough informed about the idea that there are good sources, bad sources? You know, what is media literacy like, I suppose, when you're going into a project like this? Yeah, I love this question of neutrality, um, because something, one of the first questions I ask, especially with young journalists is, are you unbiased? And nine times out of 10, they will say, yes, I'm unbiased. And for me, you know, that's not the case. We're all biased. We're all coming into journalism with a lived experience that shapes our opinions, our values, etc. It doesn't matter who you are, unless you're a robot, you <laughs> have some bias in you. Now, to maintain neutrality and reporting, you need to be aware of your bias. That way, you don't have tunnel vision and the sort of questioning that you're doing uh, with sources uh, when, when reporting. Um, it's also important uh, to know what those biases are um, when it comes to being aware of your blind spots, right? Um, you know, and this is, these are two caveats that are really important. And then also with neutrality, because this is just such a crucial part of Reuters is also the editorial rigor that goes into this with uh, two, another two rounds of editors making you aware of potential holes in the story uh, and, and narratives, uh, spotting narratives or, or suggesting rather uh, a different structure uh, that's in the interest of neutrality. Um, so I think with all of these safeguards, this is what helps us uh, get to um, really illustrate our, our neutral reporting. Yeah. And, and I think I would add the checks and balances, right? The three of us here for a reason, right? We, we don't send one person to do exactly. a podcast interview because we balance each other out, right? And you can hopefully that shows in the, in the conversation. Absolutely. And one of the things that we've heard so often over the past couple of months, and I think it's actually been uh, featured a couple of times in the digital news report, is this idea that trust is almost hard. It's very hard to gain, but it can be lost very, very easily. And that maintaining that reputation for neutrality is paramount. So is there best practice for demonstrating that neutrality? You've all touched upon this idea of transparency, but how do you actually communicate that, I suppose, to the public? Well, there's, I guess, different ways to do it, but but core of it is showing how you know what you know, um, not just declaring something to be, but how do you how do you know it? If it's something that happened um, 
that's an event that happened in public and we had people who witnessed it, well, we'll have photos and videos and, you know, description of, of witnesses. If it's something that's based on a court proceeding, there's going to be going to be documents. It, it comes back to, you know, showing what your what your sources are and how you how you know the how you know the information that you know exactly um just just to emphasize what, what scott's saying at least with fact checking because we're quite prescriptive on the specific posts or images that are misleading and, and we're transparent about uh the history of that post or, or why we've come up to the to the verdict of false or misleading. And one of the things that's also important with that is to also be transparent about what you don't know. Mm. Um, and so this is also what's illustrated uh, at times if, if that's the case. And, and this is, for example, let's say we have an image that's portrayed as going around uh, recently, but that image we could find an earlier version of that in 2016. We may not know when it was first taken, may have been in, pri- in someone's home in private. But what we can say is, look, this image has traces uh, all the way back to 2016, but we do not know when exactly it was taken. But based off this information, this image was not taken in 2022. And, and, and this may be a little more inside than the question asked for, but you know, at Reuters, we have a B2C and the B2B mm-hmm. operation, right? And um, a sort of... Um, Luxury in the B two B spaces. Our customers are news journalists, right? So we can we know their literature. We know they know what they're looking at. We know they know how to read a credit and and read between those lines. Uh, and on the in the B two C operation, we have a completely extra layer, right, of editing that goes on to make sure we're presenting what's in the B two B product to end consumers in a in a way that's that's I wouldn't say more responsible is not the right way, but but right way to say it. But it's it's more thorough in explaining the detail. Um, to an end user. No, certainly. Uh, one of the things that Scott mentioned before is this is not just a sort of one and done project. This is naturally feeds into the next cycle, which feeds into the next. And I suppose it's all bound up in the rest of the coverage that you're doing as well, because obviously almost impossible to separate some of these issues out from kind of the wider politics, wider world. Uh, so Rob, to what extent have uh, has Reuters sort of had to grapple with this idea of developing best practice for using data and infographics and stories, both to inform journalism and also to convey that information in and of its own right? It's hard to answer that, right? But but obviously, you know, people's expectations um, of news changes, um, the way people interact with it, the way people read it, um, where they're going for, how much time they're spending on it. Um, what we're able to present changes as as the technology that the average consumer has access to changes. So I think it's just a it's a constant effort to to improve. Yeah, I think and I think globally because our customers are very you know very much um, international outside the North America. Um, you know, we see interests and uh, areas of interest changing. Right. So the big question right now when we talk to clients about twenty twenty two is. What does it mean about 2024? Is Trump going to run again? Right. It's sort of like quickly get down to that question in, in the meetings with editors overseas. Um, it's really what 2022 is about to them. Um, and so being able to present things like the um, uh, the Secretary of State elections, you know, state by state, the Secretary of State is the person who oversees the election in each state and the person who would oversee election integrity mm. in each state and, and is and has become a very important role in American politics, seeing the likes of our international news uh, clients being interested in the Secretary of State of Arizona race is unusual and a sign of the times because it, because their state that, that that now informs whether elections can be um, manipulated, um, you know, theoretically. 
bizarre. The, the, I mean, the tumult for one thing, but also this idea that we now, because of this potential for misinformation, have to understand the processes by which elections happen. We can't just look at the result in and of itself and go, well, that is the truth. We have to look at every aspect of this from kind of the building blocks, from when voters vote, through to how they vote, through the processes, through to voting machines even, right. and so to, to, to develop that whole story. One of the things that we've seen uh, publishers in the UK have to grapple with is how do you, I suppose, almost grandfather uh, a news consumer in when they don't necessarily have all that information to hand at the start? How do you present a story, make it make sense in its own right, but also let them know that there is significant information that they should be looking at elsewhere to understand that context? There's a few ways to do that. One is, you know, you, you want any story to, to stand on its own and, and give the reader what, what, what they need to, to understand it. But this is where, you know, hyperlinking and connection between stories, connection between graphics, you know, showing, you know, you might make, you know, make a, a you know, as, you know, Rob just referred to the, to the Secretary of State races and why, why they're important, you know, you might in a broader story about, you know, forecast election results have, um, have a you know a sentence referring to that, but then you can that can link back to an 800 word explainer piece that ex- that you know goes into depth on it. That's a lot of it is just kind of having a real breadth of of information out there in different formats um, and making sure that all of them speak to one another so that the the reader can delve as deep deeply in as as they desire. And then on top of that, our graphics team often picks up that reporting and then develops an explainer graphic, which becomes something that can become a sidebar or helper material for for uh, public. See, that's fascinating as well. That that part of the process isn't something that we would have seen even what looking back ten years. That speed with which you can actually create those infographics to actually explain that's. Fa- I think that's the the whole evolution of it is fascinating. But um, when we're talking about uh, Obviously, news publishers, one of the things that we've seen over the past couple of years is they're resource-starved in a lot of cases. And I don't quite understand the US um, news ecosystem as I do the UK, but in the UK, we're seeing resources stripped out of newsrooms. We're seeing uh, independent publishers really struggling to um, keep abreast of everything because they just don't have the time. They don't have the feet on the ground. And so as a result, their readers don't necessarily get that whole context that we've been talking about here. So for news publishers, how can partnering with agencies like Reuters help supplement what they're doing? I mean, I often describe our role as trying to make a smaller publisher look mm. big, right? Um, supplying them with the, the access and the reach that they might not be able to get. Um, that, again, goes back to the kind of the statement I made before about it used to be only the big networks that were able to get access to the, to the, the election, U.S. election data. Um, you know, efforts like that help us help the smaller, medium-sized publisher who's just starting out or maybe just launching their first OTT service or um, digital publisher, especially one with a, a a political bent um, with or a mission, you know, get off the ground and 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 kind of equalizes them with the big guys to a degree um, to make you know whether or not they 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 they, got, they gain an audience more about the quality of their work and not missing something that's really a commodity. Yeah, one hundred percent. And and that sort of that use of resource is something that I know that a lot of particularly the the smaller newsrooms have had to become adept at just because of kind of the, the strictures of modern reporting. But Stephanie, Scott was talking before ever so slightly about what it means to respond almost in real time to information as and when it arrives. Is speed of production of, say, an infographics pack or of an explainer, to what extent do you um, see that as being kind of the future of of uh, journalism in the kind of the social age of that need to disseminate information almost as rapidly as disinformation appears? 
Yeah, I mean, I would go further and argue that we could get ahead of it with pre-bunks, for mm. example, when it comes to false news. And with the data that we have available, uh, scientists have shown, brighter minds than me, for sure, have found that um, pre-bunks, and, and pre-bunks, for those who don't know, it's, it's preemptively identifying disinformation narratives and, and writing about that. So you say, what we know, what here's are the facts, uh, here's what we don't know, for example, going back to being transparent about what we don't know, um, and, and getting ahead of the curve when it comes to that. That is what is most effective at this point with the data we have available and the research at hand. Um, so yes, speed is crucial. Um, as well. I'm not saying that doesn't mean don't be fast uh, or, you know, forget about it if the disinformation narrative <laughs> has, already, has already set forward. But yes, I would argue speed is crucial, but um, it's always best to be uh, accurate and second than first and wrong. Yeah, I'd be re- I would be remiss not to quote uh, Terry Pratchett at this point because you know he says a lie can run around the world before the truth has got its boots on, but once it has got its boots on, it's going to start kicking. So yeah, it feels like that's really sort of the uh, the model that we should be emulating there. Yeah, and I think it helps Reuters a lot that our background and, uh, and our, our core strength is actually financial reporting, mm-hmm. where speed you know and objectivity uh, are both really important and. Um, you know, business decisions depend on our reporting. Um, that DNA helps make sure that when um, we get into a space that can be more charged, like politics, um, we can we can we can apply those muscles to to really be objective and fast. Absolutely. Um, one of the things that I know we we talk about this all the time on Media Voices, and it's something that's uh, got its own topic in our upcoming report is trust in the media because it's such an emotive topic for us. Obviously, the entire business of journalism is predicated on having their audience trust. So what are some of the wider trends that you've seen around um, trust in the medium? And I'm thinking as an example, we spoke to the BBC's specialist disinformation reporter, Mariana Spring, not too long ago. And she said now that you find disinformation often arises from the pockets of communities who've sort of congregated on a platform like Facebook. So when we're talking about trust in the media, what do we actually mean by trust? Is it belief in the veracity of what we're saying? Is it sort of a general belief that the news industry has your best interests at heart? It's a very woolly term. I just wondered what you think we're actually talking about when we talk about trust in the media. If the reader doesn't trust um, what they're reading, then there's no re- reason for them to read it anymore. There, there's at that point, then you know, then you've you've lost. So, I mean. All you can do is is work as hard as you can to be as as insightful, as fast, um, and as as fair as you can be. Um, show the reader how you know what you know, um, and do that consistently over time. Um, you know, one of the things that helps with people is is experience, right? You know, um, the the media landscape is constantly changing. There's new ways that we're interacting with news. There's new publishers coming on, uh, but people do learn over time. Okay. You know, this outlet has a good track record. I read something there that said X was, you know, was a possibility of happening and, and, and X happened. Um, and they might learn that, you know, other outlets, you know, what they say is less correlated with observable reality. Um, <laughs> that's the politest that's, way you could have um, said that. I think <laughs> that's the that's the the core of it is just to kind of you know keep keep coming out and doing the doing the basics day in day out fast balanced thorough transparent and and one, one way I know we're winning you know is is our customers are 
Coke and Pepsi, right? Uh, without naming names, right? Um, you know, our customers, uh, the, 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 especially the elections product, it's being used by the kinds of news organizations people on either end of the spectrum don't trust, mm. right? So we're bringing that data to them. Um, and, and hoping that we get, we find, you know, I hope personally anyway, that, you know, we move a little more towards the center or to trust each other a little bit more by working with the same set of facts that I hope we're a part of putting out. That's such an optimistic way of looking at that. And like that, that makes me feel so much better about <laughs> almost about the state of the news industry. Um, but one of the things that we saw from the kind of that digital news report is that in some countries that polarization is, is so much greater than, than in others. And I think it's actually towards kind of the, it's much more polarized in places like the UK and the US. So Stephanie, what wider trends around trust in and relatability with the media do you hope to see addressed by newspapers, broadcasters, everybody who's disseminating information over the next couple of years? Oh, basically asking for a wish list. Um, <laughs> right. I, I mean, just touching on that point you were talking about before when it comes to trust or distrust in media, I think, and to answer this question, it has me thinking about that, um, where, you know, we live in a world now where people have unfiltered access to news or apparent news in the age of social media. You know, this isn't the 70s, 80s. 90s anymore where there was filtered access. So it seems like the world is so much worse than what it was in the 80s and 90s, et cetera, or, you know, pick, pick your decade. Um, so what I would, to answer this question of what I'd like to see is to tap into uh, a, a little bit of an empathetic bone in the sense of to understand the audience's concern. And this will help with uh, writing a, a stronger story uh, or speaking a stronger story if you're doing broadcast. Um, and by that, I mean, for example, with in the early days of COVID, when the vaccines were approved, there was a lot of vaccine hesitancy, right? And it's easy to say, well, the FDA approved it, the EU approved it, get on with it. Um, it's, it's totally safe. But if we take a step back and focus on what is the concern, you know, and, and there, there was a lot of questions around, well, this has happened so fast. This is the fastest it's ever been approved. If we tap into these kinds of questions that audiences have and take them seriously, now I'm not talking about going on, you know, indulging conspiracy theories and um, hateful rhetoric, of course not. But if we understand more about where audiences are coming from with these concerns, then I, and, and we answer these questions, so we answer why the process was much faster than what it was, then that can help build trust because we've tapped into answering questions or concerns that the community or, or audiences have had. Uh, that's one. Um, and another thing I would love to see is more engagement with uh, Gen Z, Gen Z. Um, because they're the majority of this, of this generation, it, knows fake news is a concern mm -hmm. and they want to have access to accurate reporting. And so I think this is, this is also key, right? Uh, youth is now, youth is the future, insert any cliche you want, but, but more or less, you know, cliches are cliche for a reason. And so I would love to see more uh, conversational approach, uh, which is more tailored to, or not necessarily tailored, but suited to Gen Z to to pull in these audiences as well. So as we're sort of wrapping up the discussion here, and we could have spoken about trust alone for about another four hours, but when we're talking here about the, the actual election packages that Reuters are putting together, what do they look like in practice? First of all, you know, our audience are newsrooms, right? So again, we're, we're the ingredient company. Mm -hmm. We're providing the, the, the material that our customers are using to help them present something to their end user audience. Um, and we really present the content in three different flavors. It's the, it's the 
the news reporting and pictures, text, video imagery, lots and lots of partner content um, that is unstructured to our clients, help them cover um, all aspects of the election. There is the data itself from the national election pool, which is like an API of the raw data, same speed, same uh, robustness, same polling that is shared by the U.S. networks. Um, and then the infographics so is a third sort of leg of the stool um, so that customers who uh, of any stripe will be able to um, dip in and choose which of those sort of three legs or which of the three legs, maybe all of them, make sense for them to use in their reporting. Nice. Fantastic. And as you've mentioned, uh, in fact, as you've all touched upon there, Reuters' role is unique. When we think about Reuters, we think of it in terms of being almost an enabler of great journalism, as well as a source of great journalism in and of itself. So it's going to be fascinating to see how this lands, how this develops, and ultimately how this informs what you do for the next election cycle, as, as depressing as it might be to think about that <laughs> that now. Thank you so much, Rob, Scott, and Stephanie, for taking the time to come on and have this conversation. I know it's something that our audience will absolutely have loved hearing about, almost the uh, inside baseball story of how you're going about creating this these election packages and what impact you hope they'll have. But for now, thank you so much for taking the time to listen, and goodbye. Thanks, thank you for having Thanks. us, Chris.